And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. I'm Ted Berg, joined once again, returned from his wedding celebration, the Athletics Mets beat writer, Tim Britton. Tim, congratulations again. Oh, thank you. Yes, it was it was really nice. Uh, you know, the, the Mets made a trade uh, the day of the, the reception, and I uh, saw the MLB trade rumors note on it, and then I turned my phone over, and I was good to, good to go the rest of the day. It is the one day, maybe, of, like, it, in, in, you know... The birth of children, I say also, or we're like, no one's going to get on you about the Mets made a fairly minor trade on the day you're getting married, right? Like that is a day you are safe to turn your phone off. It's funny because there was someone who, cut, you know, I think on the, I had written at the start of last week that, that I was going to take a few days off for this purpose. Uh, and someone had written that, you know, Connor Hughes, our Jets writer, uh, had had a, a similar situation where he took off uh, for his wedding, but there was news that broke that day, and he did tweet about it uh, shortly before his wedding uh, ceremony and or reception. Uh, and my, my wife saw that comment and uh, basically told me that that would not be happening uh, on, on Friday, uh, and I was in total agreement with that. Uh, totally reasonable. I, I was uh, cut off. As, as I believe we've discussed before on the show, I was on my honeymoon for almost the entirety of the shirtless Tony Bernazard scandal and subsequent press conference. And I was uh, pulled from my uh, from my cell phone and to like the wonders of Costa Rica by my wife, who was like, you don't have to worry about this right now. Um, and she was right. And uh, but the Mets, we do have to worry about uh, do we have to worry about? We feel okay about after an, yet another doubleheader split uh, and another one where they do the thing where the good one comes second. So we feel uh, a little bit more optimistic coming out of it, especially after just a, a brilliant performance up and down from the bullpen in a bullpen game featuring some names that, you know, you, you don't necessarily uh, expect are going are gonna to shut down the Braves. Yeah, I mean, they... they... Between the two games, really, after Marcus Stroman departed the first game uh, after five innings, uh, they, they had seven different pitchers throw nine innings uh, of shutout baseball against the Braves. Um, and, you know, they, they went through basically uh, their entire bullpen with, with that. I think they had two guys who did not pitch yesterday in, in the bullpen. Uh, maybe three. Three. Um, but, you know, they got the, the guy who pitched the most in the nightcap was Anthony Bonda. Mm-hmm. Uh who earned his Miller Lite, yeah. Who, who got his Miller Lite post game right next to Mid drink beers. That's like, that should be like that should be that should be on a t shirt for them for this like very broy Mets team. That is like the uh the image of them like uh around a small table with their two beers. I mean it was very like 
that's what people imagine our podcast is, right? Like the two of us sitting around a small table right next to each other uh, while drinking uh, light beer. Um, you know, Bonda pitched well uh, over those two innings. That you know, they they matched up well. Uh, Luis Rojas, I thought, deployed the bullpen well uh, to kind of he made sure he had his lefties for that top of the order for Atlanta, who didn't change their lineup at all. So it was Peterson, Albies, uh, and Freeman right at the I, top. I want to cut you off. I have a question about that. So mm-hmm. when you have a TBA starter in a game, at what point do you have to say? who the starter is do you do you have up until you bring the lineup card out because doesn't that like then doesn't it if you if you were and again the Braves like you said were keeping their lineup lineup static but if you were facing a team like the Rays or one of these or so many teams that's that that change up a lot based on matchups uh why would you ever say who your starter is before until like the game time my, my understanding is it is due at a certain point, like before the other team sets its lineup. Okay. Um, the other team could probably, they could probably, you know, the Braves could have put in their lineup, uh, you know, the minute the, the first game ended um, before hearing that loop was the starter for the Mets. Uh, but I think the, the Mets are like obligated to or obliged. I forget. I never know which one. Uh, it would certainly to, be ungentlemanly in like the, yes. in keeping with baseball tradition, but at, it feels like if that was something, I guess if that was something you could do, someone would have done it by now. Right. You know, I mean, we saw it in the NLCS, what, in 2018 when the Brewers started Wade Miley and pulled him after a batter uh, mm-hmm. against the Dodgers. Uh, that, you know, that the three batter rule takes care of that a little bit. Um, but, you know, I, I was still surprised given that that loop was starting the game that the Braves didn't uh, move Peterson in the order or, or even put him on the bench to start with. Uh, that would have changed, I think, the way the Mets went about it the rest of the way. Um, but I thought, you know, Luis Rojas took advantage of that. Uh, and, you know, you saw the depth of the Mets pen. Like, you mm-hmm. used uh, Loop, Familia, uh, May, Diaz, Lugo, and Bonda in that game. And, and really, you know, outside of Bonda, the other, the other five guys are kind of, you know, guys you can kind of sort of trust in high leverage situations. Uh, and they have at various points this season. Uh, every Mets fan is rolling his eyes about, about like Edwin Diaz more than anyone else. But you know, like you, you've pit, Diaz has pitched better the last few times. Yeah, uh, I was going to say Lugo and Lugo and May are your primary setup men, along with Loop the way he's pitched of late. Uh, and Familia uh, has been, you know, he, he's not lights out, uh, but he's pitched better this year than he has in the past couple, uh, and has been an important part of that bullpen. Like him and Miguel Castro. Uh, are the guys, if you're going to do this, you need those guys to pitch well, uh, and they did on Monday. Yeah, and Familia, I thought, you know, like you said, he, you know, he's been wild and still sort of effective all season, and, like, it feels like there's some smoke and mirrors element to it, and, and maybe he's not as, as good as the results have been, but a really strong outing for him, striking out the side after two really fluke hits. Um, and then and then I thought, to me, the big takeaway from this game and from the, the last couple of days uh, was Edwin Diaz. If As I, I'm sure you heard uh, when you put pressed pause on, on your wedding celebration to listen to Eno and I on the podcast last week, um, we discussed Diaz and his struggles. And I know you've written about them, Diaz's struggles, since the, the sticky stuff enforcement. It does look now, um, like at the very least, He's not just going to be bad moving forward. Like if if he has maybe he has made the necessary adjustment to get back to being very good. Maybe that remains to be seen. But 
I think uh, there was some looming concern for some of us, the the doomsday Mets fans among us, myself included, that, oh, maybe Edwin Diaz was like purely, uh, and knowing rationally that this couldn't be true, but well, what if Edwin Diaz was like purely a function of spider tack and now he can't use it and he's just going to be bad? Uh, that doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for uh, really across the league when you see uh, pitchers who you know, are experiencing the drop in spin rates and, and a, a consequent drop in their results uh, in the immediate aftermath of, of June 21st and the enforcement of the foreign substances ban. Like, it's it's not the really, really good pitchers who are going, who are just, you know, no one's going to go from, like, being Garrett Cole to being, like, a number five starter. Uh, like, Garrett Cole, like, it's going to take some adaptation. It's going to take a, a period of adjustment. Uh, but, you know, Garrett Cole might not be the dominant force that he was previously, but he's still going to be a very good starting pitcher. Uh, and Edwin Diaz might not be quite the shutdown closer that, you know, he's probably never going to be the shutdown closer. He was in 2018, regardless uh, in Seattle. Uh, but uh, he still has the stuff to be a very good closer. It was, it's really just a matter of commanding his fastball. And, and, you know, when he came out on Monday and like poured in the first two pitches at, first two fastballs in the strike zone, you feel pretty good about how the rest of that outing is going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of, you know, look, Mets fans are, are used to seeing this with, with closers over time. Uh, you know, John Franco was the same way. Uh, I mean, I think it's, <laughs> I think fans of every team except the Yankees and maybe the Padres ha- are used to seeing that with, with closers over time, right? Like the, the thing that made Mariano Rivera so notable was that he never had that that year where it didn't work or he never had that you know like it feels like a it closing is just sort of a fickle occupation in general and it's only the very very special ones who are able to maintain it for very long exactly like like it, and i think it's it's really just rivera <laughs> um, yeah even even hoffman uh, was not quite as automatic and uh, rivera if you'll recall like late in his career rivera would occasionally have like back-to-back outings where he allowed a hit and then if you turned on WFAN, you'd hear, like, Rivera's done. <laughs> I mean, and and I think there is a, you know, like, Mariano Rivera blew Game 7 of the World Series. Uh, and I am sure there are members of the Yankees fan base who have never forgiven him for that. Like, regardless of how good he was, the rest of the time, they'd be like, ah, yeah, but still, Luis Gonzalez, you know? Right. Uh, and, you know, if, if I can imagine the Mets fans treating him the same way had he pitched for them and, and pitched as well and as many times in the World Series for them as he did for the Yankees. For sure. Uh, let's talk about the uh, the rest of the series, I guess. it does. I, we don't need to get into the game-by-game matchups, although the, the Braves uh, have some... Uh, have some good starters coming out uh, after some after some less experienced ones on Monday. But as Eno and I discussed, and I know you wrote about, and as I know, uh, I believe Zach Scott himself mentioned, this is a, a really, really big three games coming up because of where the Mets and Braves are, respectively, in their division. The Mets sweep the Braves here. I think the Braves' season is, is more or less over. Yeah, I mean, coming into Monday, Atlanta... Like it's 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 five games in four days, uh, and it's it ends right before the trade deadline. Like that, their last game before the trade deadline is the last game of this series, uh, and they could have been the Braves could have been tied with the Mets and presumably in first place at that point, or 
they could have been as many as 10 games behind them, uh, which is mm-hmm. an insane amount of swing possible in such a short period of time and in such a critical period of time that it is happening right this week. You know, the, the split on Monday uh, narrows that range, but it's still they could be as close as two games or as far out as eight games. Uh, and even like the difference between four and six is pretty big in my mind, mm-hmm. uh, that four, you feel like you're there uh, and six, it's, you know, I think I, I looked, there are, are two teams in the last, ten, in the last since the, the change of the playoff system in 2012, two teams that have been uh, six plus games out uh, at the trade deadline who, uh, who won the division anyway, both in 2015, the Blue Jays and Rangers uh, were six and seven out respectively. And, you know, Alex Anthopoulos was the GM of, of those Blue Jays, and that's the team that went and traded for Troy Tulowitzki and David Price. Uh, mm-hmm. I, there's a reason they came back. Uh, I don't think the Braves uh, look at this the same way. This I don't think Anthopoulos looks at this Braves team the same way he did as that Blue Jays team, which had I think was under 500, but had like a great run differential and just seemed like it should have been better than it was at that point in the season. Well, and especially in the absence absence of Acuna, you can't. It's not the same Braves team it was in May. Exactly. So I, I don't expect that same kind of pushing all the chips in. Uh, so this is like you know Zach Scott said. You you know. How you perform this week may determine how another team in your division, how another rival uh, approaches its its trade deadline. Uh, you know, like the Braves, if they're eight games out, they're probably trading Jock Peterson again, uh, trading him away rather than trading for him. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and maybe they move Charlie Morton or something like that. If they're two right. games back, uh, they're looking to add someone else into that mix uh, in their rotation or in their outfield. Uh, so it's, it is a... a pivotal moment in Atlanta's season, which makes it important for the Mets, because if you can, you know, the, the Nationals seem like they're on the outskirts here. They're, I think, now eight games back or something like that. Um, then the if you can bury the Braves over the next three games, um, push them to, to six or eight back, uh, that might get them out of the picture. Uh, and then it's just the, the Mets and Phillies. Uh, and, you know, the Phillies won a big game Monday night with Andrew McCutcheon's walk-off home run uh, against Washington. Uh, but that's still, I, I don't think if you pulled, uh, if you pulled baseball executives at the start of the season or Mets fans right now, that the Phillies are the team whose talent scares you the most in the division uh, compared to Atlanta or even Washington. Uh, I think the, the, you know, they've still got flaws. Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, how Dave Dombrowski, a notoriously aggressive general manager uh, or mm-hmm. president of baseball ops, uh, approaches the next few days for them uh, to see what he adds, because that's another team that could use starting pitching and and I don't know that there is a, the move out there that really puts you on notice if you're the Mets but it, you know if the if the Phillies go out and trade for uh Chris Bryant or uh you know bring in um I don't know if they've got the the horses to get Jose Barrios or something like their Kyle Gibson uh that does you know that it makes the Mets perk up a little bit but you'd rather it be a two-team race between you and Philadelphia than a three-team one with Atlanta right there yeah, Bryant's a good fit for the Phillies too because you could you like they could use some help in uh, in center field. They could use help at third base. They could like he he'd play real well in that in that park. Um, I think one other thing that scares me about the Phillies is is Aaron Nola finally like see, looking like he pulled it all together and having a great start over the I think yesterday, um, or maybe Sunday. Um, just because his like the behind Zach Wheeler, their starting rotation has been so lousy this year that it's been sort of like to me the the thing you you can point to and be like, okay, I don't need to worry about the Phillies that much. And so Nola shaping up and pitching like the AC can be uh, 
a little concerning. But let me ask you this, um, because we talked about how this these next three games affect the Braves' deadline strategy. Is there a way? Is and I'm, I haven't thought this all the way through, but could there is there a possibility they they impact the Mets' strategy too? Because the way I'm thinking about it, if you win these three games. If the Mets win these three games, they bury the Braves. If the Phillies don't assert themselves over the next three games, and the Mets look like they have a pretty comfortable lead in the division moving forward. And then to me, it's not, oh, do we need to push to get there. It's we need to stock ourselves up for like to have the best playoff roster. And to me, that means Max Scherzer. Like, like I would say, like, if you're, if you're, Purely, if you think you're going to make the postseason, and your con- your your concern is mainly how do we line ourselves up for the best postseason, then Scherzer is by far the most obvious difference maker out there because we know the value of starting pitching in a postseason. Uh, if Degrom is healthy, you line up Scherzer and Degrom, uh, Degrom, and then Scherzer in games one and two of a postseason series. I think it makes you a favorite, maybe even against a team like the Dodgers, just because of the strength of of your your top two. In the rotation if they're not pulling ahead of things after these next three games if the Braves sweep them and all of a sudden it looks like oh there's two viable competitors in the division to me that makes it seem like a guy like uh, a position player like Javi Baez Trevor Story someone who can help them day to day and help them make that push for the postseason is a little more and and I don't know if this makes logical sense. So just help me talk that out. But would you does, could is the chance that that there's a difference in strategy depending on how these games go? Uh, I think the, the I don't think it's a huge difference in strategy. I think the the one thing you might think about differently if you're the Mets front office is about the need for a shortstop in particular, uh, because you know Francisco Lindor is going to be out probably still another. Um, three to five weeks so you're saying you know mid to late august probably you're probably looking at like august 15th to august 30th uh, on a return for lindor uh and you know jonathan vr has played has played defensively okay there uh luis guillorme surprisingly didn't play his best uh at shortstop so far in in lindor's stead you know if if it's really tight in the division you might feel a little bit more compelled if you're training for a position player to make sure that position player can play shortstop for you in the meantime, mm-hmm. you might prioritize a story or a bias over someone like Bryant. Because uh, then, you know, Lindor comes back, you can move probably story to third or bias to second, something like that. Uh, I think if it's if they if they're more comfortable uh, in the division uh, by Friday, you know, if they're eight up on Atlanta and, and maybe push out the lead over Philly to, to four and a half or something like that. Uh, then you probably don't worry as much about getting someone in that can replace Lindor in the meantime, since you're confident he's going to be back by the stretch run and certainly the postseason. Uh, and you start thinking more about, like you said, setting up for October. I think they, they want pitching either way, because it's not like the lead over Philly is not going to be big enough to feel totally comfortable. You know, Zach Scott said it on Monday, like that he's experienced it before, the fastest way for things to fall apart. Uh, is right. for your starting rotation to fall apart. Uh, the the Mets fans know that from 2007 uh, when you're starting Mike Pelfrey and Philip Umber down the stretch. Scott knows it from the 2011 Red Sox, uh, which was my first year covering uh, baseball on a beat, uh, covering mm-hmm. that team. Uh, and you saw early in that month of September, a, a month that they entered with, I forget if it was eight and a half or nine and a half game lead uh, in the wild card over Tampa Bay. 
uh, that their rotation was a mess. Uh, it was going to be a problem. Uh, and they ended up starting, I think Kyle Weiland was the rookie, uh, and Tim and um, Andrew Miller, who, who you know had yet to make his successful transition to the bullpen. Yeah. Uh, Remember so, that Andrew Miller, when he was just a starting pitcher, was like just one of the worst starting pitchers in history. I'm sorry to say, like, he was real, real bad results-wise as a starter. The, the, so, you know, they went 7-20 and 20 in September. Their starting rotation ERA was over 7. Their ERA was higher than their number of wins that month. Uh, so, uh, you know, like, that is the fear. Uh, if you are, even if you are com- somewhat comfortably ahead, as, as those two teams I just mentioned were, uh, that if, you know, Jacob deGrom doesn't come back, if Carlos Carrasco isn't healthy, uh, if, you know, David Peterson is out for longer, uh, you know, you're already out, Lucchese, you don't know about Syndergaard. If, like, none of those guys are back pitching decently for you in the month of September, that basically no lead you have is safe. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I expect them to add uh, at least one pitcher uh, just to have the depth in case uh, more bad things happen to their rotation. Uh, because, we, you know, we've talked about injuries all, all season. The Mets have been hit really hard by them. Uh, but, uh, you know, when we came into this year, the thought was that it was going to be tough for pitchers in particular in the second half of the year because of the innings uh, and how many more innings they're going to be throwing this year over last. Uh, and uh, it's been really a, a, an issue for every team throughout the season already. And it's, it's probably going to get worse. Like, it's just it's really hard to look at any pitcher, regardless of their track record of durability. Uh, like like Marcus Stroman has been a very durable pitcher. He's made every start this season for the Mets, uh, and I think he just left the one, uh, you know, has pitched a lot of innings for them so far. Uh, there's no reason, like, in a normal season, you would, you'd say, like, you feel really good about Marcus Stroman making all the starts down the stretch. But this year, you know, he, just like any other pitcher, you have to worry about, you know, I guess especially him, he didn't throw at all last year, uh, like how he handles throwing his 160th, 180th inning uh, in 2021 after, after throwing so few last year. Yeah, I think, I mean, to me, the big one is is Walker, who was such a big part of their first half success, um, has had a couple of clunkers of starts to start the second half. And when you look at the at the stats, you see he hasn't thrown like last year, he threw 53 and a third innings. That was his first time throwing more than 50 innings since he missed all of basically all of 2019 and all of 2018. He's already in sort of like the the question mark zone for innings and there's still a couple months of the season left um you know maybe this is just a bump in the road and walker will write himself and and uh pull it together and i think you have to hope you can count on him but it's hard to say objectively like oh yeah like ty walker we're good we're rolling with him through september uh not that they're going to take him out of the rotation or anything like that that would be drastic just you have to be a little bit concerned because of how few innings he's pitched in the last few seasons. Right. I mean, he's thrown more innings this year than he had in from 2018 to 2020 by a fair margin already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think he's on pace to throw just about his career high, which is back in 2015, of, of close to 170. So, yeah, like, I, I think that's the reason that the Met, that, that Zach Scott has said throughout the lead up to the trade down. He said, said it for more than a month that, that starting pitching is the top priority. Uh, for a team like you know there, there's a part of you that wants to think like you know okay if you feel good about where you are in the division you feel good about DeGrom coming back you feel good about Carrasco coming back you feel Syndergaard is it could be an option for you in September maybe you don't need that uh you don't need a starter because you can have those four guys as your your you know along with Stroman and or Walker like 
like you can get a postseason rotation out of that. Uh, then you worry about some some other upgrade you can make. But I, I think it's it's really hard for me to to believe that their their starting rotation in the in the postseason should they get there would be like a healthy Degrom, Stroman, Walker, Carrasco, or something like that. I think that there will probably be an obstacle in the way of that going forward, and that's why you you know you've got to be prepared for it because there is no August 31st deadline anymore. There's no way to just add, uh, you know, like in 2015 when they added Addison Reed, that was a huge move that they made in the month of August. In, mm-hmm. in 2006, it was Sean Green, uh, who I believe they got in the month of August. Uh, so uh, a lot of, you know, that that little uh, extra wiggle room you had uh, before the, the waiver deadline uh, on August 31st is gone. And I think that, that makes it, you know, you've got to prepare for more bad possibilities now than you would have in the past. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. What is the latest on Jacob Degrom, and how does Degrom, and does Degrom's status? Because again, this is one of these things where, to me, it's like, look, if I feel good that Jacob Degrom is coming back and is going to be healthy, and obviously there's only so confident you could be in that at this point. But if you say, look, he felt great, he he just threw up the mound, it we're all systems go with Degrom, we can count on him, or at least you know we can we can reasonably hope to count on him in the postseason. Again, to me, that drives up the appeal of Scherzer, which is like a little bit counterintuitive because it means like why add another ace when you've got one ace? But again, because like to me, this team's success in the postseason uh, right now, uh, the way it's like, is is Degrom healthy? And if it's yes, then I like the Mets' chances against just about any team because you got Degrom starting two games in a in a seven game series or in a five game series. Um, if no then it's like, oh, do you really want to go all in and trade for Max Scherzer when you know, you know, when it doesn't, you're not sure DeGrom's going to be around and and you're maybe, you know, you're you're putting all this together for a first round loss. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, they, so the Mets said on Monday, you know, DeGrom has thrown a, a light side session. Uh, he's due to throw another one soon. Um, so he's back throwing, which is good because he, he had been shut down for a little bit. Uh but he hasn't thrown like the full bullpen session that, that we're used to him throwing, uh, and he hasn't thrown to hitters yet. And that's the mm-hmm. next big step for him is, is when does he throw to hitters? And then once he does that, um, you know, we'll see if he gets a, a rehab start. I would guess that he does, uh, considering how they that he got one earlier in the year when he had missed less time. Um, he gets a rehab start uh, and then probably comes back into the rotation. So I, I, I still think you're looking that he's at least, you know, once, once he faces hitters, you've got to think he's 10 days away. So if he's he's a couple days away from that, he's probably at least two weeks away from returning. Uh, Scott said on Monday that 
Uh, they don't expect it, you know, he's had all these short-term issues. They don't think this is any different from those. It has already been longer term than any of the others. He's missed mm. more time uh, now on, to this point than he had at any other point. Uh, and, you know, it will be, it will end up being at least a month, I think, between starts for him. Uh, so, like, that's, it's more concerning uh, than it has been at, at the earlier points in the season when he missed time for the Mets. Uh, but I do. It does seem like they are optimistic that uh, you know they might have to manage him down the stretch, and as, especially if they have a more comfortable lead in the division, they can do that uh, without as much concern, uh, and then they can kind of unleash him fully in the postseason if they get there. Uh, but I, I, I think you know, kind of either way you look at it, to me, it makes Scherzer the guy you want because he's Degrom insurance. Like if you, uh, you know, the, the Mets have really liked the way how the way their team. Uh, is built for the postseason with you know Degrom at the top of the rotation and, and some of the other pitchers they have, and if especially he's not if fully the healthy, if the offense seems to be clicking now or the doubleheader notwithstanding, right? Uh, they, they've got enough kind of uh, track record bats that you know if a couple guys come through and, and get hot in the postseason, you, you feel good about it. Uh, if if Degrom isn't healthy, I mean you can imagine you can think like, well, this team is going nowhere. Why why bother? But also Scherzer gives you kind of theoretically what they thought they had already um not quite as good as Degrom, uh especially this 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 season um but someone who is in that same class basically or as close to that class as anyone else is and a horse uh, I, I, and a horse right like a guy who just has not i mean he i know he had a little bit uh, of a back issue this year but a guy who really has not missed much time at all in his career right i, I remember what he fouled the the ball off of his face in batting practice that's and right broke his nose and then started later that day or the next day or something like that. Um, I, I, we should, I, I feel like we've got to qualify any conversation with about Scherzer and the Mets as uh, very unlikely to happen. Okay. Um, I think, because as I wrote about on Tuesday morning, like there are several different hurdles that the Mets would have to get over here. And it's, first, it's, it's, is Washington sincerely interested in trading Max Scherzer? This is a guy that they want very much to be the first player who goes into the Hall of Fame with a curly W on his cap for them. Um, and trading him, especially, uh, you know, trading him, uh, to another team at this point in his career, uh, could, could harm that possibility, uh, especially, you know, to a division rival, you don't want to see him excel necessarily with a division rival. So that's the second obstacle is if, if Mike Rizzo is going, is, you know, interested in trading Scherzer, uh, it's probably easier for him, uh, to trade him to, first of all, the American league. Uh, but but second of all, a team you know out in the NL West that, that right. wants Max Scherzer, whether it's the Dodgers or the Giants, uh, you know I, I doubt the Padres, but who knows? The Padres could always add. Um, it feels like to me, it feels like the Dodgers are the inevitability, just because they always have the depth and prospects to make these deals. They always have the the way to take on the salary, and they always seem to swing it, you know, like that. So and they and they have the obvious need in the starting rotation and a team that's built to win now. So I would say like. If I don't know, it seems like if you're looking for a landing spot, that's a that's a potential one for Scherzer. Yeah, I, I would say they are the favorite to get him uh, if he is indeed dealt. The, the third obstacle is and, and Scherzer's no trade protection. He's a ten and mm-hmm. five guy, ten years in the majors, five with the last team, so he can kind of he can veto anything. Uh, you know, the Washington Post, Jesse Darty reported on Monday that you know Scherzer doesn't really plan to veto trades as much as he just kind of wants to you know if there are multiple teams interested in him he might steer Washington in one direction over another I don't know how he feels about the Mets or or New York pitching there uh, and and whether that would you know make it more likely he ends up uh, in Queens or less likely 
And then then if you if the Mets get through all that and and you know the the Nats are, are good with trading Scherzer, they're okay with trading him in the division, and Scherzer likes the idea of pitching in New York, then you talk about price. Uh, and, right. and the price is going to be probably more significant for him than any other rental, even rental position players. Uh, and you know the, the last pitcher I think of his stature that was moved at the deadline was David Price. Uh, the last pitcher of his stature who had who was a rental, you know, mm-hmm. guys like Verlander and Greinke were moved. They had years left on their contract, and a lot of money coming to them at, at a, a higher age. Uh, so Price was, I think, that was 2015. Yeah, it goes from Detroit to Toronto. We talked about that Blue Jays team, uh, and you know, the the big piece in that trade that hasn't worked out for the Tigers was Daniel Norris, who was a top 20 prospect in baseball. Uh, at that heading into that year, so that would be kind of like the Francisco Alvarez part of that puzzle, uh, and then there were some other, you know, I think it was Gyro Laborte who was like the Tigers' eighth best prospect, or sorry, the Blue Jays' eighth best prospect at the time, uh, and and Matthew Boyd, uh, who uh, was had just made his debut in the major leagues for for Toronto at the time of the trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, you're looking that that package is something along the lines of like Francisco Alvarez. Uh, a, a David Peterson, Tyler McGill kind of type would, would be Boyd. Uh, and then uh, Laborte would be, I don't know, like Jalen Palmer maybe. Um, so that's a that's a pretty hefty price to pay. Uh, and I think you can make the argument that it'd be worth it for the Mets. But uh, that is, they are probably not interested in trading Francisco Alvarez for anyone else. Uh, <laughs> and that includes guys with years of control. Uh, and I... Honestly, I, I would be surprised if they moved him even for Scherzer. So I, I think uh, if, if we're handicapping where Max Scherzer is going to end up, the Mets are not at the top of that leaderboard, and they're probably not second either. I would say to the Nationals, if you really want Francisco Alvarez, like spice up the deal with Trey Turner, and we could talk. Yeah, and, and then you're probably <laughs> throwing in, uh, you know, Ronnie Mauricio, yeah, Jeff McNeil. <laughs> you got to you're, you're gonna have to yeah. you're gonna have to pony up if you're. Yeah, I, I, I am not serious. I, I I think I would be surprised if they. Like, it doesn't seem likely that they land Scherzer. It's just he is. He seems like so by far like the sexiest name on on the deadline this this year. Uh, although there are some others, right? Because we mentioned Chris Bryant, we mentioned Javi Baez, we mentioned uh, Trevor Story, Will. When we will speak again before the trade deadline, I think. But come Friday at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time, when the dust settles, will the Mets have a player, if not of Scherzer's caliber, then a one of that tier of the big name guys? Are they gonna? Do you think that they will be uh, be big game hunting at the day at the deadline here? I think it's. I would say it's better than a 50-50 shot that they have someone who they, they trade for someone who has made the all-star team previously. Um, and I'm trying to think of like <laughs> like a guess who game. Yeah, go on. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like who uh, would fit that criteria but still be like a disappointment. I'm not, you know, it's not like they're going to add Adrian Gonzalez between now and then. Um, and, and like when they built that that bunch of like 2011 all-stars on yeah. the 2018 Mets. Uh, you know, I I, I think. Miguel that, Cabrera. <laughs> yeah, like I, th- I think they're probably the front runners for Bryant. Um, and I think he's still, they, they're the team that still uh, makes the most sense for him. Like, I, I think there are other teams that make sense for Chris Bryant. They're, you know, like the A's make sense for him. The Phillies make sense for him. The Braves and, and Nationals until recently made sense for him. But those are not the teams that typically, the, those teams, I, 
there's um, a little less reason for them to make that big A splash. You know, Oakland's not a team that makes that kind of trade too often. Uh, Mm -hmm. They haven't really since 2014 with the Leicester trade, and that blew up on them. Uh, The Phillies, you know, Dombrowski is the type that would make that trade, but also where they are in the standings, I don't know that that's the deal he makes, uh, or whether he just looks to add pitching, uh, especially for that starting rotation, uh, which could really use two guys. So I I would expect the Mets, uh, like I think Bryant, they are the front runner for. I don't know that I give them a better than 50% chance of landing him specifically, um, but uh, I think between him... Story, Baez, um, I guess John has Jonathan Scope made the All Star team. That would be that would be like uh, I one of the. I feel like he has right because uh, he was the best player count, on the like, Orioles for yes. a couple of years. Yeah, he, yeah, he made it in in twenty seventeen. Like like that's another guy that that they could potentially pick up. Um, I, I don't think he would qualify quite the same the same way. I'll, I'll acknowledge that in the, the lead up, and then I think they add. Um, at least one more starting pitcher. I've, I've said John Gray a lot in the last couple of weeks. I think he's the guy who makes the most sense in terms of price and attainability uh, and, and what he could do for them. But I think if they do add Gray, they probably look to add another arm of the Rich Hill ilk. The Hill, the Hilk. Um, I was wondering and, about that, see- uh, a guy you mentioned, and he's having a rough year, and you mentioned the divisional tax before. But uh, when you talk about like reliability, at least for health, uh, John Lester has basically like never missed a start in his career, and he signed to the Nats on a one-year deal. Again, having a rough season, but is that a, a Rich Hill type guy they might target? I mean, that that's possible. Like I, you know, I thought about him uh, a month ago. I, I guess before the Nats had had made their charge, and you were first starting to to, to look at what the, the trade landscape could be. And I, I wondered if if Lester would make some sense for the Mets. It's like you know a nice veteran guy to have in the, the clubhouse. You'd you'd probably like John Lester to, to spend some time with David Peterson or someone like that. Yeah, like slow um, heartbeat. He's been to the postseason a bunch of times. Like he, you know, like that's a guy who knows what he's doing. When I, I asked around about that possibility, and you know, this is four four to six weeks ago, uh, and, and what I heard from people in the Mets front office and and elsewhere is just that like the stuff is has backed up so much for Lester mm-hmm. that you would be trading for him essentially just for the clubhouse presence. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe because of the way things have changed for the Mets where they, they do just want innings uh, out of someone. Uh, and, you know, Hill is not exactly the guy you trade for when you're looking for an innings eater. Uh, that, that maybe Lester does make a little bit more sense. Uh, but you are looking at a guy who really over the last three seasons now, that's it's over 300 innings of a 4-7 ERA. Uh, you know, 10% worse than league average. Uh, so it just hasn't been, you know, the guy that he was before that, which makes perfect sense. He's 37 years old. Right. Uh, but, you know, I, I think he's he's like someone in that vein uh, might might be uh, kind of a, a secondary addition for them in the next couple of days. Well, we I want to get to a question, but I just want to uh, emphasize a point you made in your column, which I, I, I liked, which was the idea of, and it seems fairly obvious at this point of piggybacking starters once you start working Carrasco and possibly Syndergaard and DeGrom and, and everyone else back in the rotation because they do they will at some point if everybody gets healthy or something close to healthy have more guys than they have rotation spots and I couldn't help but thinking that when I was the, watching Rich Hill pitch for the Mets for the first time what it would look like to an opposing hitter to face Rich Hill twice and then Noah Syndergaard <laughs> right that one is I think the most jarring uh back-to-back you could put together i mean i think even hill to mcgill uh, and maybe i'm just saying that because of the rhyme mm-hmm. uh would be would be a good one uh you know like i've, I've said 
before that McGill's success against right-handers in particular makes me think he's he could be useful in the bullpen if you, even if you bump him from the rotation. Uh, and you can imagine, you know, Hill gives you uh, 12 outs or so or a turn and a half through the rota- through the, the lineup, and then you go to McGill for for another turn through the, the order, and then you get to your uh, your big-time guys out of the bullpen. That, that could be a nice combination for you in the regular season. I don't, you know, I don't think you look at doing that in the, the playoffs quite the same way, uh, but it could be a way to, to eat some innings if you get all of these guys back. You know, if you've got DeGrom, Stroman, Walker, Carrasco, Hill, McGill, uh, Syndergaard gets, makes his way back at some point. You can you can think about doing that to kind of preserve some guys' innings counts that you're not pushing DeGrom or, or Walker to go seven or eight uh, on, a, on a, any kind of consistent basis uh, and also, you know, have an effective effective tandem starter, essentially. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Our question today comes to us from Sweden. Uh, Philippe is a regular listener to the show. He is fairly new to baseball. He has gotten, he says he is just falling in love with the Mets and baseball this year. Um, So he has a question. He has a few questions, but um, the first he asks, and and it's interesting, it's an interesting perspective, um, because this is something that uh, someone who is fairly new to baseball might wonder. Um, Whereas if you've been following it, you, you might, wonder the other side um he philippe wants to know why is it just 10 teams that make the postseason it seems like a lot of good teams miss and maybe it is too hard to make the playoffs well i i think it's funny because i think if if either of us were asking the question well certainly me i don't want to put words in your mouth uh the question would be (laughs) why do as many as 10 teams make the playoffs uh you know like baseball has always been uh the the sport of the long game the long season you play 162 games or 154 for a long time uh, to separate the best from the rest. Uh, and uh, it's the, the sport that has uh, a lot of variance in a short series uh, situation. You know, like the, the difference between a team that goes 93 and 69 and a team that goes 69 and 93 is one game every seven. So that's right. that's the difference in a seven game series. Uh, so, you know, you, you want to kind of, you know, the playoffs in any sport, but especially in baseball, are basically about entertainment value. Uh like the reason you have playoffs is because people enjoy watching tournament style um, situations. Right. Uh, but base, you also don't want to, con- you know, totally undermine the point of having a regular season. You don't want a regular season to be completely meaningless, uh, where you have you know consistently like oh like they went seventy eight and eighty four but got hot in the playoffs and won. Uh, nobody right. likes the two thousand six Cardinals. And in, I feel like in baseball that would happen all the time. Unlike, unlike, and I, I don't know hockey as well to compare it to, but with the NBA, um, the team that plays better in a basketball team wins the game, right? Like, because ultimately it's about taking good shots. And if you are taking good shots, they are going in and, and you know, preventing good shots, right? right? Like, whichever team is taking more good shots is going to win the basketball game. Whichever team in baseball hits the ball hard more times like that that doesn't mean you're going to win you know like if there's there's just so much luck involved um and so to me it's that 
like the 162 game season is what's necessary or, or probably not even like it's not even quite adequate for doing it. But it is as close as we're going to come to uh, eliminating the factor of luck and determining the best teams. And so as sort of like from a traditional standpoint there to me, it's like, well, you shouldn't let the teams that are like unless you can distinguish yourself over the course of 162, you don't deserve to make the postseason. Yeah, and you look in, in Major League Baseball, it's it's relatively rare that you get the top seeds in both leagues in the World Series. Uh, it was it was kind of ironic that it happened last year when you had the shortest regular season. You still mm-hmm. got the, the Dodgers and Rays. Um, you know, I, I remember when the, the 99 NLCS happened, which is uh, the greatest baseball series ever played, and don't, don't let anyone tell you differently, until the last the last batter. Um, you know, th- like that Mets-Braves series was an awesome series. I can still totally buy the argument like, why did the Mets even like like what did the Mets do to earn that opportunity? Like the Braves can sit, beat them over 162 games, beat them individually in those matchups. I think they that was back when they only played 12 times. The Braves probably went nine and three in those 12 games against the Mets that season. Uh, like you know, if the Mets had won that seven game series, it would would have sucked if you were <laughs> if you were a Braves yeah. fan. Like yeah, like, we just beat this team for six months. Why do we have to beat them again uh, for another week? Uh, and I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that argument. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, like the Mets know that from 88, where they were, you know, they beat the Dodgers all seven times that season. They were way better than them right? in the regular season. Yeah. Like you, you're, you see that happen in baseball a little bit too often, I think, uh, to really, to, to want more teams in the playoffs. I, you know, the, the way playoffs work in any sport is they're, you're always going to get bigger. You know, we've seen it. Uh, right. I think. In every, you know, the NHL with with the pandemic expanded their postseason. Otherwise, they've been at 16 for a while. But the NBA basically expanded it with the the play-in tournament this past year. Uh, the NFL just expanded to, to 14 from 12 after being there for a while. Uh, you know, college football, uh, which is I think the sport that needs a lengthy playoff as much as any other because of the right. scheduling imbalance and the few bases of comparison. Uh, like they're going to go from four to to 12 or whatever in the next couple of years. Uh, so I think baseball is probably the sport that, like, if I were running it, I would make sure there's there's no more than twelve that make the postseason, and I'd make sure that like winning your division meant a lot. Um, yeah, but- I think that that's a key because, like, I think like the only way I could abide more teams in the postseason would be if you make it significantly harder, and they've done this to some extent, but like significantly harder for the lower seeded. Uh, teams to advance and that's like uh, you know play-in games like they've had Um, I loved the idea of like the two-game series like the lesser team uh, the the higher seeded team only has to win one and the lesser team has to win two um, which I think Theo Epstein has proposed that a a few years back Um, but I do think like yeah to to make it uh, to keep the regular season relevant you have to give a, a ton of value to the divisional titles in the postseason yeah, I, I and I agree with the uh, the two games, you know, and I, I think you can apply that not just to the wild card game, like you can apply that to uh, other series uh, if you want to make the division series a four game series essentially, mm-hmm. uh, where you give the the team with the better record as starts the series up one zero essentially. Um, right, I'd be okay with that. It would really make team. It know. would shorten. It would shorten the postseason, which I think a lot of people would think is too long as it is, um, and it would not make it any less exciting. Right. So, uh, or, you know, you play around with home field advantage in those situations. Um, so I, I think there are ways to fix, to, to advantage certain teams in the postseason. 
better than what baseball does to this point uh, so that you get the best regular season teams uh, playing in the World Series more consistently. Uh, but that is the brief introduction to why the, the playoffs are not 16 teams in, in Major League Baseball on a regular basis. Uh, you know, I think it's it was it would have felt I, I think uh, it was OK because the Astros had had a long track record of being a good team. But like we came one game away from a sub 500 team playing in the World Series um, right. last year uh, in Houston uh, like that would have you know, if that were. Uh, Milwaukee in the the National League or or Miami. I guess Miami was over 500. But uh, if uh, but the, still the, the Marlins, 31 and 29 Marlins had you know beaten the Cubs in the first round and then beaten the Braves and upset the Dodgers uh, strangely in the the NLCS. Like and then gone on to, to play in the World Series or win the World Series. Like that would have felt I think very fluky. Uh, and uh, you don't want your champion to feel fluky ever. Uh, as a as a professional sport, uh, take that three time world champion San Francisco Giants of the early twenty uh, teens. Uh, thank you, a huge thank you to Philippe for the question. Uh, we really appreciate listeners uh, anywhere who want to want to get after us. Uh, I'm at uh, OG Ted Berg on Twitter. Tim is at Tim Britton. You can email ask tedberg at gmail.com uh thank you for listening we will be back barring unforeseen certain circumstances to discuss uh the trade deadline in greater depth as as it approaches until then tim peace out and, and philippe can can you email one of us to tell us whether you've been to o'leary's the, the boston sports bar in sweden uh and whether it's good or not because i'm still interested. uh yeah, we I I forgot about that unsolved mystery from 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 earlier in the podcast. So yes, do Philippe, please let us know. Adios. Peace. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.